0: Welcome to Series 3 of the Bowen Buzz Podcast. My name's Chris Reed, and here we get to talk the buzz on all things Bowen Therapy from interesting practitioners, trainers, and we also get to hear from experts sharing their secrets to assist Bowen Therapists growing their businesses and growing their lives. So welcome to this edition of the Bowen Buzz. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to John Coleman. Now, John is a naturopathic... <laughs> doctor uh, out of uh, a small village out of Melbourne Uh, but John's got a fantastic story to tell and it is really relevant for bone therapists so uh, really excited to have you along John. Thanks Chris, it's great to be here, good to catch up with you again. I think we last met at a conference up in uh, Cairns a few years ago. 16, yeah. Yeah, now John, um, I've been following you for some time, and I've been in touch with you a number of times over the years um, for some advice, and uh, also been recommending um, your publications to to people to, and to, uh, to, patients, to to clients. And um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to have a chat today. I really appreciate your time. So, John, your um, you've your story of of Parkinson's sort of goes back. You were diagnosed with Parkinson's back in. Ninety-five, I
1: think, about twenty-five years ago. That's right.
0: But but it actually starts before then.
1: It starts a long time before we we're ever diagnosed and and tracing back my history, it, it as far as I can see, it actually started pre-conception. Right. So you know, my family was in stress. It was it was World War Two. Dad was away at war. He came home. Um, obviously. My mother and he slept together and maybe did some other things. And then when he went back to Darwin with the bombings, um, my mother was pregnant. She was in a very primitive house, um, very, very hard life. And she had two other kids to look after. My older sister was sick and my younger brother, my older brother was angry. Um, And so she was under a lot of stress. And that's where this um, pathway started for me. That's interesting it's, that you
0: say that, John. I might just jump because I was talking to Doreen Schweigler recently who's a, a naturopath also in Melbourne and does a lot of work with conception but also preconception yeah. and often having the, the parents in a really well situation so that they could actually help to produce a really good uh, embryo uh, fetus and child. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> Our our health, um, we can make a lot of choices and a lot of changes uh, about our health during this life, but there are influences on our health for at least the previous six generations. Now, now we, we know that from studies at Monash, many years ago on on the development of cancer and we saw that just something simple like changing the, the food regimen of rats, we do terrible things to rats, but changing that food regimen. Um, over six generations, over 90% of the rats were developing cancer and then changing the food back to a healthy diet um, during the 6th and 7th generation, less than 1% were developing cancer. So there was just one change. We know that life experiences for our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera, has some effect on our health. Now, it, obviously the most influence is in our parents, and that means both parents. For dads who are listening, you're not off the hook. It's really important for dad to be healthy as well as mum to be healthy uh, because even though we don't carry the baby, we're still half of that baby's inheritance. And then, of course, we get to make changes as we grow up in our life. We get to make changes about how much our parenting grandparents can influence our health uh, because we can make changes. I suppose the importance
0: there is there that we are actually making changes for our offspring and their children as well.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And and I mean, I wish that I had known back before I had children what I know now, because then my kids would probably be healthier. Um, so so we can we can have a profound influence. But I'm I'm hopeful that you know parents who are listening can. Help their children, and then those children will go on and make changes that will help their children, and so on. We we're setting uh, a precedent for another six or seven generations. And, and did you have did you have a healthy childhood then, John? Were you were well in your early years? I know I, I had a, a fairly troubled childhood. Um, as far as illnesses are concerned, I had uh, quite severe asthma until I was around eight years old, and then I developed rheumatic fever annually for six years. Um, so that was challenging. Um, I also had some, you know, troubles. There, were, there was some abuse and, and uh, other difficulties in childhood. So all that influenced both my physical health and my behavioural choices.
0: So some of your some of your choices weren't the best. Is that what you're saying? Well, I started
1: smoking when I was nine years old. Right. For instance, so so I I tried to commit suicide when I was about nine and and failed and then was feeling pretty trapped and a young friend could get free cigarettes because his brother had a wardrobe and the top shelf of the wardrobe was loaded up with packets of 10 capstan, red and blue capstan cigarettes, so we could get them for nothing. They didn't know how many were there, so this friend of mine would pinch them and we'd sneak away and smoke and, um, and I was hooked. You know, right. I'm a, an addict at, at nine. Um, but then also with both my family influence and Poor self-esteem and an addictive personality. I ate too much sugar. Um, as I got older, I started drinking coffee and and became addicted to tea. And I was taught that you drank tea and you're washed with water. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we should wash with tea, but you know we're supposed to drink water. Um, and and again, you know, with influence and choices, I ate. Pretty rubbishy food. Um, I ate vegetables and meat, but it was generally overcooked. I ate a lot of grains, um, a lot of high sugar food. And then as I got older and more independent, I chose a lot of takeaway. Now, even though hamburgers in those days were a lot better than they are today. I sound like a really old person when I say that. I? but Those were the days when you got real meat patties and and proper bread buns instead of the stuff we buy at the Golden Arches. Um, you know, it was still junk food. Yeah. I was still eating, eating on the fly um, and, you know, I was still eating a lot of bread and cereal and, And sugar. So, yeah, a lot of my food choices and lifestyle choices were not good. And I started drinking alcohol in my late teens. I became a binge drinker, um, which, you know, is really unhealthy. So, yeah, a lot of things I did exacerbated the illness process. Right, so you weren't you
0: weren't giving your body the best opportunity. So you're saying that even the, so the stress uh, you you suffered as a, as a young person, and then some of these other choices that you made around the, the nicotine addiction, the alcohol binge drinking, and poor food choices, perhaps led to perhaps what development of of disease uh, is
1: it easier or. Yeah, I was going to get sick. There was no doubt about it. I was going to get sick with with the choices I made, and also um, I chose a very stressful career path. You know, in that I I, I was an early school leaver, and and um, so didn't have even a high school um, certificate, and. But I got into a management position, and that meant that I had to work a lot harder than managers with degrees and things. I worked really long hours, and I tended to take on board any criticism. So I I put myself under a lot of stress. So all these things influenced the way my body was working, you know, um, we know that, that stress and trauma uh, are one of the ideological pathways leading to neurodegenerative disorders. So I had trauma, I had stress, I put myself under more stress. We know that uh, grains and animal dairy cause inflammation and um, can, again, exacerbate the... Uh, illness process, and we know now, didn't know then, but know now that people consuming animal dairy have up to 60% higher risk of Parkinson's disease. Is that right? So, so you know, a lot of things I was doing was exacerbating this illness process. Now, did I cause my own illness? No, I didn't. But I, I exacerbated that process with the choices I made.
0: Right. and you got and you so you got sick quite young
1: in, when we're talking Parkinson's Yeah, 52 I was diagnosed which is relatively young um, it, it's been known as a disease of the age so you know over 70 but um, it, it's actually getting younger
0: and younger. I was going to say are we seeing that people are, are becoming sicker younger with Parkinson's
1: we we are seeing that and that's we we seeing that in relation to increased stresses um, in the Western world and also increased contact with neurotoxic chemicals.
0: Right. And I suppose from what you are saying before, perhaps diet as well with processed foods and that sort of thing is not going to help either.
1: Well, you know, these are... Uh, a standard diet called the standard American diet or standard Australian diet um, with the initials SAD, which is (laughs) very appropriate. Now, that is based on grains. You know, that encourages around 11 serves of grains a day and then we go smaller uh, up the pyramid from there. Sure, there's vegetables and fruit, et cetera, et cetera. Now, simply by... Basing the diet around grains causes inflammatory disorders. Right, which is the which is the big. You know, if we could if
0: we could manage inflammation in all its essences, uh, we it would certainly be helping
1: uh, with, with lots of conditions that people develop. Absolutely. So we can look at the obvious ones like autoimmune conditions and things like rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, etc. But we know cancer is an inflammatory disease. We know that dementia is an inflammatory disease. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, PSP, MSA, you know, all these have a very big inflammatory component. So if we have a low inflammatory food intake, we are less likely to become ill, or if we do become ill, it's likely to be less severe. Right. Right. So we're seeing, seeing ourselves up for more success rather than actually the opposite. Correct, correct. And, and we know that food has a very profound influence on our health, even if we're well, even if we appear to be well, uh, but, you know, the food choices aren't particularly good. If we change our food choices, we we'll see an improvement in our energy
0: right. and the
1: clarity of mind. Now, were you aware of this when you got when you were where you
0: were at that point with your with your work or your study or your life? So, when you got diagnosed,
1: okay. Well, I was be- becoming aware of it, Chris. Um, I started studying naturopathy in 1980. Um, and I, I owned a health food store at that stage, so I was a little bit aware of what was going on. But I'd actually bought a health food store because I couldn't afford a hardware store. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I, I became fascinated and I started to study naturopathy, but that was the year when my oldest boy was diagnosed with leukemia. Right. And and that was a challenge of stress and and learning all at once. So I, I dropped the study um, and we learned a lot with Damien I lived for nearly four years. And we learned a lot about combining Western medicine and complementary medicine with that. And then that was after he died, we started very special kids. And that was a whole nother uh, trauma and stress. Mm. But then I went back to school um, in 1990 and uh, I completed uh, uh, three years, and then I ran out of money. So then I uh, I had a six months off, and then I got some money together and went to the next college and started again. And it was then in 1995 that um, I collapsed. So I was sort of halfway-ish through the studies, and um, I called the college and said. I didn't think I'd ever be back because I was so sick. So I had some basic thoughts about food, and I had some contact with people, but I had to go on a journey because nobody said to me, "This is what you do to get better from Parkinson's." So when the, when
0: it manifested itself and you and you collapsed, you say um, you were then what
1: diagnosed fairly soon with Parkinson's at that time. <laughs> Uh, it, was, it was a typical and very distressing journey. Um, I was um, shot off to a neurologist, professor of experimental neurology, who looked at the referral letter from my doctor and uh, gave me a bit of a glance and said, oh, well, you're stressed here, take this antidepressant. Uh, it's an antidepressant called doxapin." Um I wasn't very happy with that. I went to the hospital library and checked out Dr. Pin in MIMS, the drug guy, and all the adverse effects of Dr. Pin were the symptoms I was displaying. Right. So, and tremor and fatigue and, you know, all those things. So, I then went to um, my old naturopath who said, no, it's Parkinson's, and I went to saw a craniosacral therapist who said Parkinson's. So I went and saw a neurosurgeon who I admired a great deal and he was fabulous. He spent a lot of time with me and gave me a very thorough physical examination, looked at my MRI, et cetera. He said, well, you definitely have Parkinson's disease. Um, but he said, look, keep on doing what you're doing and try not to take the medication.
0: Okay, so, so right, don't, so then
1: you weren't put on any medication, any Parkinson's medication, or were you... Not at that stage, no, no, and, and this surgeon, the neurosurgeon said, no, try not to take it. Then another surgeon in the hospital that I worked with pulled me aside and said, you know, I can see you have Parkinson's and what are you doing, et cetera, et cetera. and he said, look, the medication won't do you any good. So I said, oh, let's. That's pretty interesting that doctors are telling me this. So then I went to a couple of other GPs and uh, specialist physicians, and they all said Parkinson's. So then I went back to my neurologist. Um, I think it was the fourth time then. And he said, Oh, well, you know, you're not quite as depressed. And I yelled at him. <laughs> and I said, You know, the, the depression is nothing. I'm not depressed, I'm sick. So, you obviously had I, symptoms. You had, you had Parkinson's type symptoms. I had, I had tremor uh, in hands, arms, head, leg. I had internal tremor. I had a uh, nice. frozen face on the right hand side. I was drawling. I had the dropped eyelid, the ptosis yeah. in the right eyelid. Um, when I walked, I couldn't swing my right arm and I dragged my right leg. Um, I had pain, pardon me. <coughs> Um, a lot of pain and muscle rigidity. I had classic Parkinson's symptoms that are described in every textbook.
0: And these sound like they were, they, so they were progressing
1: too, John. You were they're oh, yes. getting worse, yes? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. eventually after I yelled at the, the neurologist, he said, oh, I suppose I'd better examine you. And he said, oh, yeah, well, you have Parkinson's and early stage multisystem atrophy. Right. Then he packed me off to a colleague for a second opinion, and this colleague was worse than the first guy. He hardly looked at me. He looked at the ceiling and fiddled his thumbs and said, "Walk here and twist your wrists," and then said, mm, yeah, "Right, I'll send you back. Yeah, go and see the, the professor." So the professor then wanted to give me drugs, and I, I was just disgusted. Is the polite word for it? And um, I said, no, I'll find another way. Now, I live to regret that decision sometimes Mm -hmm. because my symptoms were really severe and I think levodopa medication may have helped. But on the other hand, if I had taken the medication without knowing that there were other ways to get well, maybe I never would have got well. So you got really quite very you got very sick then, John. You you I was what they call stage four, On there is there's two scales. One one is the Hernan and Yar scale, which have has six stages. There's stage zero, which is no symptoms, stage one, it's mild, two, it's getting a bit nasty. Stage three, it's, life is pretty difficult. Stage four, you can almost not manage by yourself. Stage five, you need full-time care. Um, I was at stage four. So those normal uh, activities of daily living were very difficult to... Absolute nightmare. Right. It took me an hour and a half to get
0: dressed. And usually like, once once the normal progression that we see uh, under normal medical care with this is, is that it's, if someone gets to stage four, then they're I suppose if they're just waiting, okay, when do I get to stage five?
1: Well, yeah, and at and stage four normally, and I, I treat people at this stage, they're on large doses of medication, often on a number of different drugs, um, and they're needing a lot of help and care. And the tragedy is no one says to them, you can make changes, you can help yourself, even though you can hardly walk and, and you know, speech is difficult and you're not sleeping and all this, you still can make changes which will improve your health. And, yes, it might take a long time, but you can make changes. So, unfortunately, some people just
0: feel they're on a, on a road that they can't get off of and and, and there's a inevitable end that
1: perhaps isn't very far away because they're not... Yes. They're not... And they're told that over and over again. Mm. Over and over again they're told that. And I, I, I've had, you know... Do you, do you understand the concept of nocebo, which is reverse placebo? Right. All right, so if we, you know, placebo is when we make someone think something's working even if it's not, and nocebo yep. is the opposite. Yep. And I saw a prime example where one of my patients was getting better and better and he reduced his medication and he was playing golf better and you know, enjoying his family, and he went to see his neurologist for his annual visit, and the neurologist said, yes, you are, you've improved a lot, but you will get worse pretty soon. Oh, great. (laughs) So this guy was destroyed. Yes. yes. Just destroyed, and all his symptoms came back. And that's nocebo, and that's used a lot. You know, um, you have Parkinson's disease. It's incurable. We don't know what causes it. And there's nothing you can do, take this medication and listen, if you can raise some money for my research, that'd be great.
0: Right. So it's almost like we're sort of saying, yes, you are on this, you are on this path, there is no hope. And and the person almost gets to decide for themselves, I suppose, based on that expert
1: advice, that there is no hope, therefore I'm I'm gonna progress. That's right. That's right. And too many people uh in that situation and it's not their fault it's what it's what they hear over and over and over again from people who are supposedly experts. So John you decided not
0: to take that advice and not to take that medication and that and
1: and how did that work out for you how did that progress? Well I, I was lucky Um, in that I found a couple of practitioners, complementary practitioners who prepared to work with me, a homeopath who actually didn't think she could help me but she said I was too pig-headed to refuse (laughs) so she tried to help me, Um, a a craniosacral therapist who who just helped relieve the pain and stiffness a bit. Uh, I still saw my naturopath who advised me on food. I did a lot of my own research. Um, I was with a, a spiritualist group at the time, so I was meditating every day and weekly in a group when I could get there. Um, so, you know, I, I had some support around me. Um, I saw some counsellors because I began to see that there was a lot of my life journey that had contributed to this. Yeah. And I realised that I didn't like myself very much. So you needed to sort of uh,
0: go back and undo some of those those past beliefs, past uh, that that you'd come to sort of see yourself as. Yes, yes. So you I feel that was I, part I, of your
1: part of that healing that occurred. Yes, I had to learn to love myself as I was, as this ugly old man dribbling and and you know um, wetting myself and all the rest, I had to learn to love myself and I, it took a lot of time and a lot of help, but I did, you know, I used things like um, putting a picture of me as a, a little baby and talking to myself and nurturing that baby and making a group of toys that I would have wanted when I was a kid and and having them. Um, I did a lot of affirmations. I used positive meditation as well as passive meditation. Uh, I I read books, you know, and looking for strategies. But over time I, I came to understand that I was actually a pretty beautiful human being. Right. And, and
0: you decided that you could actually do something about this rather than have it, have it just uh, take over an inevitable course.
1: My aim at that time was to make myself well enough to finish my Diploma of Naturopathy. I was, I was really angry that, you know, I, I guess looking back, I'd had a pretty tough life. I'd worked really, really hard. i have been through a lot of nasty stuff and I wanted to finish something. I wanted to finish my diploma. I didn't care if I ever practised or not. I wanted to finish it. I wanted that piece of paper. So, I mean, my homeopath was right. I was pig-headed, absolutely. And that was the aim, to be well enough to Finish the diploma, then I didn't think beyond that. So, having that goal
0: was something that was able to drive you forward and give you focus. It was very important, I
1: think, Chris. Yeah, I, th- I think that that kept me going, even in the impossible nights when I couldn't sleep and I was in pain, or or you know, I was trying to finish a 10 hour shift in a hospital and, and my body just wouldn't respond. Mm. It, it just kept me going. It was something
0: there. Yes, it was an I wanted internal, internal focused rather than necessarily being internally focused all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and did that occur? Did you finish? You obviously finished. You are practicing a naturopath.
1: <laughs> I, I finished. It, 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 in fact, um, you, you know, at the uh, graduation ceremony, students get prizes for the best homeopathic studies and the best treaties and the best this and the best that. And I knew I wasn't the best at anything, you know. I'd finished. Maybe, maybe. And that's all I cared about. Surviving, and, John. And I'm sorry? Maybe you are the best
0: at getting to the end and the best well, at surviving. Well, you dying. know, the, odds. the college gave me a prize for finishing. Well done. Good <laughs> on you. Good on you. Ah, oh, dear, oh dear. And um, so, so you finished your studies and, and were, you, were you becoming,
1: were you getting better at that point? Were you like you? Well, I'd recovered. I, I, I was then symptom-free. So that was uh, 1998. So towards the middle of 1998, uh, a friend pointed out to me that I no longer had symptoms. So you didn't have the tremor anymore? I didn't have the tremor or the stiffness. My speech right. was clear. Um, I was now um, mm. passing a stool regularly. Um, I was no longer wetting my trousers. Right. So, you know, I could walk reasonably well. I still had little bits of stiffness, etc., but, you, you know, for all intents and purposes I was symptom-free and it was about four or five months later that I, I actually finished my Diploma.
0: Right. Okay. And did you go back to your neurologist uh, to, to sort of say, hey, or, or were you under ongoing care from them at all? Did you sort of go back and um, how hey, you remember me? No, I didn't. I
1: wish I had. Um, I did write to the neurologist um, <laughs> later in the year. I think in about nineteen eighty nine or there. Uh, uh, 1999, or thereabouts, maybe 2000, and said, "Here's what's happened. This is what's, you know, what I've done and what I've achieved." And I, I after a while, I got a little note back saying, um, "I'm very pleased to hear about your health and yeah, that was it. That was it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and and that's it. A typical response mm, mm. For, to people who recover, who, who no longer have Parkinson's symptoms and go back to their neurologist, who says, well, maybe you never had it or, um, you know, isn't that nice? Next, please. Right. So there's really no
0: introspection or wonder or how has this occurred or, you know, can we do this? How do we do this better for
1: other people? Yeah, and, and that's the sadness of the situation that that when you know I and and people like me have tried to present to doctors and neurologists that perhaps they can make different choices too. Perhaps they can support their patients in changing their lifestyle, and they will get better results. Even. If combining it with medication, perhaps their patients will need less medication and have less adverse effects, and they're just not interested. Right.
0: And one of the therapies you did use, though, uh, with the complementary therapies you talked about before with the craniosacral and naturopathy was some bone therapy as well?
1: Yes, it was. And that was serendipity. I think there was a lot of serendipity in my in my journey and because I've subscribed to a magazine called the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine from the UK. And in 1996, I read a story by Julian Baker uh, about bone, and, and something in that spoke to me and, and I felt that this was an important um sort of therapy to follow up. I'd never heard of Bowen therapy. I didn't know a Bowen therapist, never heard of Tom Bowen before this story. So I hunted around until eventually I found um, a class run by a guy called Rick Loder who was one of Ozzy's students and Rick had come on to on, um, when he had a car accident and became a paraplegic, and was treated by Kevin Ryan and uh, one of Tom's boys, and then uh, was trained and became a volunteer therapist himself. So he gave me my basic Botek training. Right. And I started to, even though I still had Parkinson's symptoms, I started to treat people because I'd been doing some massage. And I switched more to bone because I saw better results. So then I didn't really think much about having bone treatment until my right shoulder seized up, the frozen shoulder. So I went back to Rick, who started treating me and I saw lots of things improve right. with his treatment. And he was struggling with the shoulder, so he took me to see Kevin Ryan. One treatment and that freed my shoulder up. That was a very interesting uh, treatment experience for me. And then I continued with Rick. So I came to Bowen late in the process, but I saw really good response. And it was after that that I started looking at why does Bowen work? What is it that's helping? people with Parkinson's, what is it that helped me? And I started looking at fascia and Russell Sturgis's work, Eleanor Oyston yep. and her studies, um, and we looked at fascia and we looked at the hormonal balance and, and blood pressure and all the things that Bowen can do. And then um, over a couple of years I ran an open study uh, with all my patients who were made the food choices, meditation, aqua hydration formulas, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then chose a form of bodywork right. individually. Some had massage, reflexology, Feldenkrais, etc., and some had Bowen. And at the end of that study, we saw that the Bowen patients were doing better; they were improving more rapidly. Right. So again, that. that we needed to look at why and what and how it's been very
0: interesting. And do you think um, from that, perhaps from the study and the work that those uh, patients got uh, had, were, were there some um, principles around perhaps how the bone could be performed or um, managed so that they got a better result,
1: perhaps? Yeah, there was a difference, and, and I'm sure you're aware, Chris, and everyone listening will be, that some uh, bone therapists are very gentle and some are quite firm and some are hard. Yep. Um, and I and found that, and it makes sense to me, found that those therapists using a gentle touch and being patient with their patients were getting better results than people with a hard touch. And to me, that makes sense in that the people with a neurodegenerative disorder are already in trauma. Right. They're already in pain. Um, and it's not an accidental pain from gardening or football or something, it's a pain from life. And so, a therapy that causes more pain or distress. Is going to exacerbate the illness process. A therapy that relieves that pain and distress is going to help them make progress. So and I found it with massage as well. Right. Right. So, so smaller amounts of,
0: of input. I can sort of say to my students that a body that's under pressure or under, under a whole lot of, um, you know, under a lot of stress, it can't manage a whole lot of work. It needs time to process what we're giving it. So so would that, yeah. would that be right? So less less work, a gentle touch yeah. and, and and just but, but fairly regular.
1: And longer breaks. Longer, you know, initially I, I would use um, just the basic, you know, the BRMs or the blockers or whatever you want to call them, um, some basic moves with long breaks and a very light touch. I I use a touch that I'm prepared to put on my closed eyelid without discomfort. Right. And and it's about five grams or so. It's right. a very soft and at times
0: with gone, sorry. So, so that's a good a good way of saying when people is how much is light touch. So that yeah. what, what Aussie would call eyeball pressure.
1: Yeah. That's right, that's right. And look, I I had a remarkable um, experience with this. There was a a gentleman came to me. He was about stage three and a half Parkinson's and one of his symptoms was a very, very rigid neck. Everything was like iron cables in his neck and he could not turn his head at all. He had to turn his whole torso. And he'd been to chiropractors and masses and all sorts of therapists. And I said to him, look, you know, you probably won't feel what I'm doing, but I just want you to, you know, put up with this. And every time I saw him, every two weeks, I'd use this really light touch, even lighter than eyeball touch, on his neck during the neck procedure, but without actually compressing the muscle at all. Right. In three months... He was getting thirty degrees rotation in his head, and he was able to swallow, etc. Uh, by the end of that year, he had full rotation and no pain in his neck at all. That was just really, really gentle touch on patience. Remarkable, and that's the type of thing that has gone on to
0: inform the way you actually use Bowen with with uh, your Parkinson's patients and how you you, you advise that it's used.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's just just that gentle touch. I'm, I'm not going to try and teach anyone to be a Bowen therapist. I'm not a Bowen teacher. I'm just offering these principles that I've seen. I've seen now, you know, 2,500 people with Parkinson's, something like that. Right. And, and I refer them all for Bowen if I possibly can. And I've seen over and over again... Sometimes dedicated, enthusiastic Bowen therapists want to do too much too quickly, too firmly. They want to push those muscles and push those tendons into performance and it's counterproductive. The patient gets more symptoms and goes away. But again, we see that people who are gentle and patient have lovely breaks and give the patient time to talk then they have success and people move forward and they get reports back saying oh i had my first bowen today and it was wonderful i haven't felt so so well in years you know and i i could walk quite well for a day after my bone we get these rave reviews it's wonderful That's terrific
0: information because if we can give, if we can sort of let Bowen therapists know how to use their Bowen for really specific conditions like this, then it it goes a long way. Like you say, someone may be it may give the person a completely different result if if the if the principles were very gentle work, very minimal amount of work for a start, certainly perhaps longer breaks. Um, and but and done on a regular basis. So um, now you do talk about some of this in um, in some of your publications. I think John, don't you? you sort of uh, have you talked uh, written about the
1: Bowen and the way it's best performed. was uh, first, uh, first in my uh, in my book "Stop Park and Start Living," which is what I call my old book. Now, um, yeah, "Stop Hacking and Start Living" was published in 2005 and it's still available. Um, and I talked about my observations with Bowen and some principles, again, you know, not trying to teach anyone to be a Bowen therapist, but introducing the principles of gentleness and patience and doing it regularly every week or two weeks and and taking time, and then I've expanded that to some degree in my new book, which is called Rethinking Parkinson's Disease, and that will be released in November. Um, I've got a pre-publication special at the moment for anyone who wants it. But um, so then I, I've talked about some of my research, etc., there too, looking at. You know how Bowen works best, and it does. It works really well for people who are chronically ill and gives them a lot of relief and comfort. But you know, my my warnings and my principles are gentleness and don't think we can do it on our own. You know, Bowen isn't going to cure Parkinson's. That's right. But yep. if it's if it's presented correctly it's going to be a very valuable adjunct therapy. The patient, in the end, has to do all the self-help stuff
0: to go along with it. That's right. And I think it's, um, it's really worthwhile for any Bowen therapist who perhaps listening to this to, have, to well, either have a look at your old book because that's got a lot of the information you're talking about, but then perhaps we'll put the links to the, um, to the new publication as well because I think we, we do see a lot of people uh, with Parkinson's. I've certainly seen quite a few over the years in, in my practice, and it's great to have some guidelines and how to use BOEM, but then also how we can advise them and what in other things and other people they can go and see um, and to add to that complementary um, team that can help them around, and part of that, like you say, may be around obviously mindset for themselves. Um, cool. it, so perhaps some um, natu- naturopathy um, support as well. And but that, but even having, and often people, you know, that they, they be having themselves to to get a copy of your book as well to read it, because then that because it's almost like a self help book, is it not? The first one that you yeah. wrote it, it helps helps patients. It's very valuable for patients to get
1: a hold of. Yes, yes. That, that one was written as a self-help book um, and, and yeah, I, I hear from patients around the world saying I've just read your book and, you know, I'm working with it and that's really helpful and I've updated a lot of that information in the new book and I've put in some sections for practitioners. So I've re-emphasised the, the Bowen section there, that there's a section for patients and a section for practitioners. Um to help, but um, it's, it's the other thing you know, I think to say to bone therapists is don't be frightened when someone comes in and says, Hey, I've got Parkinson's disease or progressive supranuclear palsy or multi system atrophy. It's not something to be frightened of. You can be helpful, you can help the people with the principles. I've talked about, and, yeah, it would be fabulous if they do, as you suggest, Chris, that suggest that maybe they get a copy of my book or they go and see a naturopath or a herbalist or a homeopath to help them sort out their food choices and their hydration. You know, Bowen, we found actually... Works a lot better if people are well hydrated. Yes, and hydration is improved if they use products called aqua hydration formulas, which are uh, an Australian product. Are uh, you involved
0: in actually someone with, with, with your own treatment with uh, hydration? Was that something yes. that came, came upon yourself? It's, in fact, explain that. that I've a serendipitous. Well, yeah. And I've had you talking for a lot. Take a sip of water while you're there, John. You must be getting a dry mouth. I reckon. I've had yeah. you chatting away for <laughs> quite some time, but certainly.
1: Yeah, well, I've been, I've been sipping away at my water. But... Oh, good, good. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I again, okay. serendipity. I, I, heard Dr. Ursula Boblik give a lecture on the aqua hydration formulas at my college. And, again, it spoke to me and I spoke to Yaroslav, and he was a naturopath, the only hibbert, had developed these formulas for athletes and they'd never used them for sick people. So um, I became their guinea pig because I was still quite sick. And it was 1997 and I became their guinea pig and we had to explore ways of delivering, again, We can't take an athlete's dose. You know, we need to be gentle and slow and patient. So I took tiny, tiny doses and um, we found a protocol that works. And then I also found, again, in the clinic, we haven't done formal trials, unfortunately, on this, but in the clinic I found that people using the aquas for hydration got better results from Bowen. Right, yes, because, because oh, I see. So
0: obviously better. Well, you know, the aquas also have, they, they are obviously hydrate
1: water-based, but they have other homeopathics. Uh, okay, it, they, they are just little bottles of homeopathics and flower essences, and you put just one. The aquas come in, in little bottles, uh, 20ml, 30ml bottles, these four formulas, there's a AM and PM for males and an AM and PM for females because, you know, you may have noticed we're actually different, males and females. Yes. And our hydration needs vary according to the time of day. Now, so um, generally they're taken in a normal-sized glass of water with a bit of apple juice to help absorption. Um, you put in however many drops are prescribed and there's a whole range depending on why you're using the aquas and then drink them down in the AM and the PM. Um, so these work on the hypothermia, reduce the stress response which improves hydration, improves water uptake, improves the thirst response and it helps to hydrate tissue. Now, hydrated tissue responds better to bone than dehydrated tissue. Yep. And we know that fascia, if it's hydrated, responds better. So, you know, there's an advantage for Bone therapists, as well as I know you all um, ask your patients to drink plenty of water, but there's an advantage in having a look at the aqua hydration formulas for a response to bone.
0: Right, that might be good. We might be able to put some um, some links into the show notes, John, um, around Aqua sure. so people can have a look at that, um, perhaps, and uh, they might experiment a bit within their practice with them to see how um, what they find.
1: Sure, I'll send you a
0: link. Oh, that'd be great. And certainly with people, because we know that Bowen actually himself uh, would recommend some people to drink distilled water back in the day, um, if he felt they were incredibly like very yes. poorly yes. Uh, I'm...
1: I, I'm not a fan of distilled water. It tends to be dead water. Yes. But the other warning I have for people, because, you know, um, water is so important and we all need to drink a litre and a half or two litres a day, but there's a, a big fad at the moment around alkaline water, all right? Yep. And alkaline water, in my view, is dangerous, because we need a very acidic environment in our stomach to digest food. So we need a pH of between one and two in our stomach to digest food appropriately. If we drink alkaline water with a pH of eight or nine, then we're raising the pH in the stomach and over time, we can reduce our digest- digestive integrity, and even start to create reflux. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, we people, drink okay. neutral water.
0: Yep. Neutral water. Very good. Very good, John. It's been um, it's been fascinating. I, I so how, can I just and I know I've, I've kept your time. Uh, I've kept you for a long time, but I, I do want to ask also, how did you come about? Writing the books in the first place because you've you've published a number of books. Um, what was the process there?
1: Um, I started writing um, as a cathartic exercise after my son died in 1984, and I wrote a book called Measure of Love, which has never been published. It will be one day, and that's his story. So. I found that a useful exercise. So when I recovered from a Parkinson's, I thought I needed to write down the story, if for nothing else, for my own family. And so I wrote Shaky Past, the first draft, and I sent it off to a publisher I knew, Michelle Anderson, who rang me the day after she got the manuscript and she said this is fabulous i love it but i can't publish it it's not in my list i want a do it yourself book can you write a do it yourself book i said yeah okay i'll do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i i started writing it and then <clears throat> I decided to take an annual leave for the first time in years. I took four weeks annual leave. I went down to Tarwon Lower, staying at a, at a little cottage a friend lent me, and I took my laptop computer and uh, some notes. And for four weeks, I got up early in the morning. I wrote until about 12 or 1. I went for a walk, came home, wrote a bit more. And then, you know, cooked dinner and went to bed. And I did that for four weeks. And at the end of four weeks, I had stop parking and start living in its draft form. Um, So Michelle was pleased. She was the editor and she she was uh, very good to work with and we got it knocked into shape. Um, So then... I ended up publishing Shaking Past myself in 2012, but about three years ago, I thought there's a lot of updates needed. There's a lot more research I've done. There's more Western medical research come out, so I need to rewrite. Stop packing and start living. But when I came to look at that, I realised I just needed a whole new book. There was so much more. We started to look at chronic infections like Borrelia and Bartonella, et cetera, as an etiological pathway and a lot more toxins. So um, I wrote Rethinking Parkinson's Disease over two years and it's taken another year now to reach the stage of almost having it in print. Well done.
0: Congratulations on that. And is that where you came to the, like when you started looking at the causes of of Parkinson's disease right from the onset? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, well, I'd been looking at this. I I originally thought uh, when I wrote Stock Parkin that the primary cause was trauma and I was aware that there were some toxins involved so you know, particularly things like glyphosate, etc. Roundup, um, but I wasn't as aware about about the food toxins or other agrochemicals and garden chemicals. I wasn't as aware of some of the makeup and products that were used, and I certainly wasn't aware then of chronic infections as a cause, and that. Didn't occur until around um, 2000 and uh, when did I 2010 or 12. Uh, I discovered Lyme disease or Borreliosis uh, because my wife was diagnosed, and I started treating that, and then realised that this was a likely etiological pathway for Parkinson's, and started testing my patients and found that about 30% tested positive for either Borrelia or Bartonella. So we need to, to deal with these infections as well as toxins and trauma.
0: Well, that, that sounds like a whole another hour's podcast there, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very with, big, with, big discussion. I, I, might be, I might be back in touch in a few months' time. We might even revisit all of that too. So, oh, All right, mate. Now, you, you see, um, you, you have you, you consult with people from all around the world. Is that you
1: have people um, yes. that you treat? Yes, As I see so a few people in my clinic up here at Lansfield, but most I see on Skype. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've patients in New Zealand, USA, Austria, uh, UK, uh, France, you know, a few other countries, Denmark. And you can manage, you can manage like, so if people
0: were to perhaps refer um, their, their patients with Parkinson's to have a, con- a consult
1: with you, that would be okay? Yes, yes. So, um, you know, I much prefer to see people in, in person, yes. face to face, but we just can't. And at the moment there aren't any other practitioners doing exactly the sort of work I'm doing. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that this will change and I'm hopeful that Rethinking Parkinson's may inspire some practitioners to take up the flag, as it were. Um, But at the moment, yeah, I'm happy to see people um, when I'm fit them in. I'm an old man. I don't see a lot of patients every day. Mm. But if people are prepared to wait, I will see them.
0: That's terrific. That's fantastic. And be, so we'll put some um, information into the show notes I'll get off you after and we can have it uh, to go out with this podcast and certainly um, a way that people can, can, can get hold of your new book for, for practitioners to have a read. Um, certainly this is going to um, pique some people's interest because, as I said, we're going to see more, well, we see plenty of it now and, and we're going to see more and more of it. And certainly that the information that they can assist their clients with, uh, whether it's uh, certainly through doing the bone on really well for them, um, and appropriately perhaps, but also then talking about the mindset side of things yep. and um, and nutrition and hydration, and just giving people some good information around that, and then perhaps where they whether I refer they refer them on, or certainly do some more study themselves around it. So I think it's been um, it's been great to to uh, talk to you about it today, John. I really appreciate your time, and My um, uh, I think. Um, We'll see what we'll see what comes of that. If people get in touch with you, or certainly get in touch with me, we can um, we can um, give them all the information we can. So I really appreciate your time today, John. It's a, it's a a fascinating story. I could have talked to you, as I said, for another hour, but I think I need to let you go and have a have a drink. And um, we'll certainly perhaps capture you another time. Thanks, Chris. Good to talk to you. Good on you, John. Thanks very much. Bye. Mm-hmm. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Bowen Buzz Podcast brought to you by Geelong Bowen and Remedial Therapies and Bowen Buzz Training. If you'd like to help keep the lights on and assist the ongoing production of the Bowen Buzz Podcast, you can hit the donate button and we thank you for any assistance given. I'd also like to thank Louis Reed for our original music. I'm your host, Chris Reed, wishing you all the best till next time. Enjoy the buzz.